Happy Thanksgiving, guys. Just a little apology about my audio. So there's a lag on my end and a few words are lost here and there, but my guest Dion is crystal clear. She's the one talking all the good shit, so you aren't missing anything important. But be sure to stay tuned until the end for a little surprise and a travel and shit first. I made it around the world. Salutations and shit, y'all. Welcome the fuck back. <laughs> you know, I still have to get tired of having songs, so shout out to Abe. Appreciate you, kid. Can't wait to see all the places you will go. Uh, that being said, welcome back to another episode of Travel and Shit, your new favorite travel podcast, where I, your host, D. Carey, have a conversation about current um, of travel and how travel has impacted my life and the life of my guests and great shit uh, as opposed to the destination because travel is way more than vacation. So this week I have a guest and let me tell you why I have a guest. And I got to start with saying thank you again to the guests for the last minute alley-oop. And so thank you to the plug, my boo, Mary. Hey, we both have Justin's, yeah. But thank you to Mary for um, coming through. Uh, so post haste and um, with actual useful and resourceful information. So thank you, Mary, shout out to you. Um, I recently saw an article uh, where what I, and I, that's what I didn't do, say the link. So essentially I put it on my story. So I'm sure some of y'all's seen it. And in a nutshell, COVID vaccination will be required to fly, says Qantas chief. That was um, BBC News back on so long ago of yesterday, uh, November 23rd. I'm recording this on uh, the 24th. So yesterday um, starts off by saying internet travel travelers will in future need to, pr to prove they have been vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to board Qantas flights, the airline says. Um, if you're not familiar, that uh, that is an Australian um, airline. I've never flown Qantas, uh, so can't say if I fuck with them or I don't. But um, I know that I already have my own um, feelings, if you will, about vaccines. And I want this episode to just be me reading Google articles and, um, you know, pulling shit out my ass. So I happen to know scientists. I know people that know things of the medical nature. So I uh, hit up my roommate and I asked Mary if um, that was exactly what she did. Cause I know that she works um, in some smart nigga field. And um, first of all, let me say, I asked my brother who is, uh, you know, and I forgot what it is he's working on, but he fellow at Brown. So smart nigga shit. And uh, he told me no. So mom, dad, there you go. Okay. Keep asking me, did you call your brother? I tried. But Mary, like I said, came through with the alley-oop and gave me Dion. And that was my long drawn out way. Thank you to my guest. So Dion, please introduce <laughs> yourself and welcome to my rambling ass podcast. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> my name is Dion Latham. Um, I am a clinical research associate. 
So my job is to monitor clinical trials, which gives me some kind of leg to stand on in this conversation. Um, background, I have a BS in biology from NCANT, go Aggies. I yeah. also have a BA in forensic science, Ooh. go Quakers. Um, and I Where's work that? in clinical research. Qu- um, Guilford College is in Greensboro. Okay. Um, Guilford College is in Greensboro. It's a old Quaker school. Um, so the Quaker clap, which is just a silent clap, go Quaker clap. Um, I worked in laboratory settings in microbiology and infectious disease, molecular infectious disease, meaning hep B, hep C, HIV for about four years. And then after that, I went into clinical research and I've been in clinical research now for almost, ooh, I'm getting old, almost seven, almost seven. Um, and I currently um, am a clinical research associate. Um, I can't say the pharma name, but it's a big one. Right. I'll say it like this. It's a big one. We got a black CEO. Y'all, be, y'all should be able to find <laughs> the videos. But right. I've been there for, <laughs> I've been there for about three years. Okay. Um, I normally work in oncology or cancer research, but I have some experience in vaccines um, and still infect infectious disease like HIV. Okay. So, so yes, I, I hope I can answer your questions. If I don't know something, I'll tell you, I don't know. I don't like to be one of them people telling people stuff, but like, and that's that. not it. Um, I just, yeah, no, I don't like to do that. And I try to also give people a place to pick up and research for themselves to try mm-hmm. to understand what's going on. Um, it's a lot to digest. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to digest. So I hope I can just provide some clarity for when people are, you know, figuring things out for themselves. So let's start with, you know, a very basic conversation. What the fuck is a vaccine? Let's start there. Okay. So, cause I feel like, it- so, um, let's go ahead. It's the yeah. best way to start. Keep it it's simple. a very like- good question. Yeah. It's a very good question. What is a vaccine? Um, So this is basically a vaccine. A vaccine is a way to prime your body to be able to respond to something. So let's say I get sick, right? We'll call it virus A, okay? Um, I get sick with virus A. My body responds. My immune system goes into action. It says, oh shit, I don't know what this is. I've never seen this before, right? So we have cells called memory B cells. And there's different cells that do this, but I'm going to speak mostly to just the primary ones. Memory B cells figure out what is virus, what is, what is this? And it tries to learn the virus, right? That's why they're called memory B cells. It's like the girlfriend who remembers all your transgressions. She never forgets that girl you looked at two years ago at the restaurant. I know you looked at her in the way you used to look at me. I know. She's on it. Okay, that's a memory she got B the cell. <laughs> She's on it. Okay. Listen. IRS of receipts, itemized <laughs> statements, right? So the memory, <laughs> the memory B cell then says, okay, okay. So if we see you again next time, oh. I know what to do with you next time. So that initial response is your, is your primary response, right? It's the first one. The second time she said, look at this nigga here. Oh, you think you slick. <laughs> I've seen you before though. And I, I, I already know what you about to do, what you trying to do, and I got something for that ass. So that's the secondary response. So that's the more robust immune system response because the memory B cell was like, I've already seen this thing before. Mm-hmm. I know what lie you about to tell me. I've already seen you before. I know how to handle you. Mm-hmm. So the vaccine, in the essence of a vaccine, the goal is 
to give your body something to basically create a memory of without going through the full trauma Mm -hmm. okay of of the first interaction with somebody that's the goal so like with 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 my little uh, boyfriend looking at the girl at the restaurant right the vaccine could be like your homegirl who already then knew him like girl let me tell you what he gonna do he liked to you know be hitting on the little girls at a restaurant just you know heads up you know if you see it you know what to do so that's the that in the most fundamental way is how a vaccine works. The idea is how can I show you and teach you what's about to happen without you going through the full trauma of dealing with this nigga? That's basically how a vaccine works. I love that explanation. I completely get it. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the point. So it's like, if we can get you, if we can basically show you the receipts, video camera, your homegirl that set him up. See, sis, I told you. So you didn't have to live through it that way. The memory B cell, the second time around said, I know what he going to do. So you're able to have a more robust response to the, to the presence of it again, when you run into it, that way you do not have to experience the full gambit of negative effects, right. Mm -hmm. That come from a virus and a bacteria. There are vaccines for bacteria. Um, But that in essence is a vaccine and the goal of a vaccine. Okay. So how in, do, in the most raw basic form, how do uh, vaccines generally created from my quick Google search? It was okay. basically um, a what do you call it? Like a dead version or a weakened version mm-hmm. of the virus mm-hmm. that you're trying to vaccinate against. So how do mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a great question. What kind of different vaccines are there? That's a fantastic question. And this is a place that can get very confusing very quickly because there's multiple vaccines for the same organism that are not all the same. So what you're talking about as far as a weakened version, that is what we like to call a live attenuated virus. Uh, We can just call it a LAV. Okay. L-A-V. All right. Live attenuate attenuate viruses, um, they are what you just said. They're weakened versions. A lot of them are chemically weakened in a laboratory, Um, but it is basically a weakened version of of the virus. The idea of that is it's enough virus to go into our body. Memory B cell, receipt chick, can read it, right, with, with less trauma. That way, the second time around when I come in contact with it, we already have a a response, right? We already got the IG post ready to cuss him out, ready to go. That's the point of a live attenuated virus virus vaccine. Okay. So pros of these vaccines is that they usually are very effective because you're getting a weakened version of the virus, right? Mm -hmm. So your body usually has more time to interact, to get a full um, reading of all the things it can or maybe will do. So your memory B cell is really ready to go with all her receipts. Mm-hmm. Um, cons of, of these viruses, um, these vaccines, excuse me, stability. So in the news, you might be hearing, oh, this vaccine needs to be kept super cold. You know, how are we gonna, how are we gonna keep it cold? So for live attenuated vaccines, these do require extra preparation in stability. A lot of them also come in like powder form. So they have mm-hmm. to mix them up on site. And okay. anytime you know you got an extra step of mixing, 
you have human error, you know, as far as accuracy. I mean, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. The other thing with these viruses, um, these vaccines, is because they are live viruses or weakened version of viruses, there will be some people who get the disease from this vaccine. Okay. I'll give you an example. There is a form of a polio vaccine that is actually an oral vaccine, right? The oral version or one of the oral versions is actually a live attenuated virus, right? Mm -hmm. So for a small population, when I say small, to give people an estimate of what I mean by small, I'm talking about 0.003%. That's what I mean by small. Because, you know, I I hate to use words that you don't know what they mean because small to me can be different than somebody else. You can't. And it's important, especially in these conversations, that you're giving people a reference range. Um, and for and just for everybody listening, if you ever want to know these things, everything I'm telling you is public record. It's not just public record, but it's required to be public. Um, I can give you some resources if you want to post later for people yes. who want to look up some of these things. Yes, please. But I when agree. it comes to these serious side effects and adverse events, these things have to be published. Um, and I can give you also the list of like the legalities around like they have to be published. So when I say small and I'm speaking just to the polo vaccine, um, the oral version, I mean mm-hmm. like 0.002 or 0.03% of people will actually develop polio from this because again, it's a weakened virus, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that certain populations of people, if you already had a weakened immune system, you know, from malnutrition, um, Yep, from malnutrition, a previous condition. Um, some people who have like HIV, they can't do certain live attenuated vaccines. They need a different version. Makes and sense. that's why when you look at vaccines, you find multiple vaccines, right? For multiple, like, you know, polio. Oh. There's tons of polio vaccines. There's, there's tons. So the first polio vaccine we know came from Dr. Salks, right? Funny um, you should bring that up. Very benevolent, very smart man. Yeah. Because I did a little about the, uh, <laughs> the 1955 coffee that yeah. happened when they rushed yep. it. And that was what I was going to close. Like that was a rushed job. So we'll go ahead and finish what you were saying. We'll yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I got you. I got, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so from Dr. Salks, um, who was a very intelligent and very benevolent man who had a heart for humanity, he gave out the polo like program, like all polio program, like all his whole notebook, you know, his book of rhymes, so to speak, he <laughs> gave it out. And he said, Med- <laughs> he said, you know, medicine is for the people. And so mm-hmm. he, he gave it out. Um, so there's different versions of, of, of a vaccine and especially with polio, depending on the market that you're in in the country. So here in America and other countries that have more money, the polio vaccine that we often use now is not a live attenuated vaccine. We can afford some that are a little more specified. They're not always as robust of a response, but they're more precise. We can afford that. If we lived in a country like India, where they might not be able to afford it, you know, they have to do what they have to do. And so those are still often those, the oral version. Um, Another live attenuated vaccine that everybody might be familiar with is the measles vaccine. It's another one that's a live attenuated vaccine. So that's, that's number one. Number two is inactive. You might hear like inactive proteins or whatever. Um, inactivated sounds like what it is. It's a true form of like an inactivated protein. They're very stable. Mm-hmm. They don't require sub-zero um, storage or transport. Um, they often though require you to get multiple doses. Okay. 
you know how they say, okay, you're going to get round one and then mm-hmm. in six months you come back. So an example of this one, um, like the whooping HPT cough, one, right? Bordetella okay. pertussis. It's the, the, um, the one, I think it's what Gardasil is HPV. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that one is an, act, is an activated or a subunit, but it does okay. require multiple, multiple doses. Okay. Um, but like one of the Bordetella pertussis, which is whooping cough. Mm-hmm. You might hear people talk about whooping cough. Um, this is one that's very important if you have a baby and they're around their grandparents. Oftentimes the elderly can have Bordetella pertussis but babies can't really handle that. So you might see some older people say, oh, my granddaughter, you know, is having a baby. I'm going to go get my booster, that kind of thing. Make sure they're straight. Oh, okay. But those are basically in, inactivated viruses. Mm-hmm. So that's number two. Number three, subunits. So this goes down to the precision. So the purpose of a subunit vaccine is to say, hey, if I have a virus or some kind of pathogen, right? I want to just pick apart pieces of it that we know cause the biggest immune response. So instead of giving you an inactive version or weakened version, I can just give you that precise piece that's going to hurt you, right? Oh. So they're broken up into pieces. Yeah, so that's a subunit virus um, vaccine. They are more precise, but they also cost more money, okay. obviously. Yeah, they more cost work more money. Done, which makes sense. Um, it is. It's more work because it's not just a matter of, did I identify the right piece? What's the right ratio? Are there multiple pieces? So it requires kind of the mix and match to figure out what combination is going to work best. Um, So that's that. Overall, they are not as effective as a live attenuated um, virus vaccine, but for obvious reasons, they tend to be safer for people as far as spread across a large population but they are more expensive. Um, the Hep B, when I got the Hep B vaccine, I was in middle school. I don't know if people remember that. You had the three ver- series of it. Mm-hmm. That is an example of a subunit okay. uh, vaccine. Um, the last the last vaccine, like the major type, um, mm-hmm. is called toxoid. So toxoids is basically, they're mostly bacteria or viruses that produce toxins. So what people do is they'll take the toxin and they weaken the toxin or they chemically change the toxin in the lab. And that then becomes the base of the vaccine. The purpose of this vaccine isn't like lifelong immunity. The purpose of it for the most part is to get people who are of a particular um, weakened group, weakened meaning babies, right? Who don't have a full immune system yet or certain population of the elderly is to get in protection until they can grow into actually having um, some kind of immunity. So this would be like um, diphtheria, Tetanus, okay. we, a lot of us have a tetanus shot. Mm-hmm. Tetanus is a bacteria. Tetani is a very painful way to die. Um, and it's, it's everywhere. It's in soil. It's on metal. You know, they say, yo, you cut yourself with metal. You got to go get a tetanus shot. Right. So that's also why they require boosters, you know, every now and then. So in a nutshell, those are the four kind of categories of a vaccine. I'm sure you could find somebody who's a vaccine manufacturer to give you some subgroups. But for a nutshell, that's kind of how they're spread out as of now. There are some of the talk around some of the COVID vaccines that are different than what I just explained. But generally speaking, these are the four categories of vaccines. So is that helpful? Uh, yeah. Have you considered being a teacher? Like you made <laughs> that makes hella sense. Like I followed with minimal effort at that. Okay. I mean, I ain't dumb. But um, yeah, it, that was very, you made that very easy to understand. So thank you. for. Um, 
Okay. So with all of that being said, with all the different types of events, are you familiar with what that, because then you mentioned that they weren't even discussing that as an option for COVID. Are you familiar with what they are in discussion with around the COVID? Like, what are we looking at? Yeah. So, so that's a very, that's another great question. So in order to answer that, I want to just give people a little backstory mm-hmm. on coronaviruses as a family of viruses and then how this is affecting us at COVID-19. Because this is where I personally, as someone in science, feel as though the information is a little convoluted and hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that everybody have access to basic information because it helps you be able to understand what it is you're reading. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, So here's the thing. So coronaviruses as a family are not new. They are very well researched. There are about seven coronaviruses that we have identified that are able to be transmitted in humans, right? Um, And with that being said, let me say this about viruses in general. So I know we've all heard the term mother nature bats last, right? Mm -hmm. Mother nature and father time. Those are the only two things that are are gonna be like undefeated. Mother nature with viruses in general, this is how people need to look at viruses. And I say all viruses. The goal of a virus, right? is to be a universal key that unlocks all locks. Locks meaning host, humans, rabbits, owls, squirrels, tigers, frogs, whatever. All of those hosts are considered locks. But the goal of a virus is to become a master key. So I want people just to remember that because when they hear things like, oh, they said that this transmitted this I don't believe this can happen. No, the goal of all viruses is to be, what's the ring? The one that rules them all, the one ring to rule them all. They want to be the one key that can unlock, you know, that can unlock all the locks, right? So with COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 is really the the actual virus. We've seen though SARS before, remember? In the early 2000s in Hong Kong, they mm-hmm. shut down Hong Kong quick, fast, in a hurry, started shutting down Shanghai. That was SARS-CoV-1, pretty much what we saw first. You might have also heard of MERS. It's the Middle Eastern Respiratory Viral mm-hmm. Syndrome. That also is in the same family of, co- of coronaviruses. Oh. So with MERS, so, so MERS, that's what I said. We, look, we've seen her before. We, we have seen this heifer before. She just got on a different outfit this time. You know what I mean? She didn't change her wig a little bit. Mm-hmm. she changed her wig she changed her shoes but they're still in the same family so there's four that are known to be common in humans that cause symptoms of a common cold you know like sneeze a little bit a little stuffy you know take some soup to fed eat some soup take a day or two off of work but the three the three home wreckers <laughs> okay the hussies of them all is sars covid sars covid 2 which is what we see now right so SARS-CoV-2 is what is causing Corona COVID-19, what we see as far as the syndrome. And MERS. MERS is called the Middle Eastern um, Respiratory Virus, but it was transmitted originally from camels to humans. And then it became transmittable humans to humans. Okay. So you don't see as many outbreaks of that. It is monitored very closely because MERS is extremely deadly. SARS-CoV-1, you know, the original Hong Kong version, uh, was also very deadly. So to your point about, okay, so how do we get here? And then like, what are we doing moving forward? 
one of the things about seeing MERS before and seeing SARS-COVID-1 before is that we already had a very good understanding of coronaviruses as a family, right? So when the new hoe come, we already got her halfway figured out as far as genetic code. So to answer, I know a lot of questions I see online from people are like, so if this is a new virus, right? How are we already in development of how do we, like how are we already in vaccine development? Well, one of the reasons we're able to be in development is because we had so much genetic material in practice from the SARS outbreak back in the early 2000s and MERS. In fact, one of the very first physicians to sound the alarm on COVID-19, people might remember this, it was a young physician in China who passed away, but he was a part of some of the original teams that studied SARS-CoV-1. So that team in Hong Kong, like Hong Kong with SARS, they changed a lot of things as far as how they had their city organized um, as far as overall public health response. And there was a lot of research teams that remain very, present, you know, in studying SARS. And that's where a lot of the basic information that we have to understand what's going on comes from. These teams never stop their research. Okay. Okay. So to give, so, so that's the thing. So COVID-19, she just, she's a new hoe of the same family. Got it. So that's where, right. So that's why we do understand certain parts of it genetically. Now she's different. She's learned from her predecessors that you just can't, you know, kick in the door waving a faux faux. You got to yeah. sneak in yeah. <laughs> easy, right? She, right. And she, she realized she's like, okay, if I get, if I bust through the door and go ahead and act a whole fool, right? right. They're going to pull me out this room, lock me up, and I can't do my thing. And that's one of the things that makes COVID 19 from SARS COVID 2 very difficult. The incubation period is very long. You can feel fine, not have any symptoms for a very long time because it allows her to be smart and be very pervasive into a population. Okay. So for people wondering, so these companies that said they're working on vaccines, a couple things to remember. There's a couple of groups that have public funding. And what I'm mm-hmm. telling y'all is all something you can look online. I will provide the resources for you to post that show people where they can look at what I'm talking about. Okay. There's a lot of groups that have been studying coronaviruses as a family for many, many years. Some would argue that if we had not cut public funding for the past 10 years, we could have been further along in this process. Okay, fair. So that's that's one thing. Plus, because they are genetically related and we have the beauty of genetic sequencing now, right? Mm-hmm. With big computers and a whole bunch of smart people who are able to sequence DNA, having that genetic code lets us be able to start a little faster. We're not starting at the block anymore. We're a little further along in that process. That's not to say that there hasn't been an extraordinary effort to move as quickly as we can on this. That's not to say that. It's just that it's not the same as 1952 with Dr. Mm -hmm. Salk's mixing up some cells in some beakers in a Mm -hmm. room, you know what I mean? With an incandescent light bulb. It's It's not the same anymore. Okay. So. Okay. Yes. So with the. So. Yeah, we have a bit of a delay. You go ahead. Okay. So, so one thing I did want to mention since I started talking about it, when I said that some of these coronavirus vaccines are different mm-hmm. than the four categories I talked about earlier. Yeah. 
this is something I'm seeing in the news a lot too. People have a lot of questions like, what do you mean? So I cannot remember off the top of my head, every company, there are tons of people who had their hat in the ring working on vaccines. And here's where this is a benefit to us. Competition is a great thing. It allows people to have options. And the reality is you need multiple options of vaccines because every vaccine will not work in every population of people. And that has always been the case with vaccines, period. People are deciding which approach they want to take with this vaccine. So the one we see in the news is the Moderna vaccine, right? We see that in the news in the news. The Moderna vaccine is different in that they are using an mRNA molecule, which is a genetic molecule, um, to provide the immunity. And this is theoretically how these work. So you know how I talked about the memory B cell who keeps the receipts, right? Right. The mRNA, think about it like this. mRNA vaccine is the Mm ex-girlfriend. Okay. Your dinner dates at eight o'clock. She roll up on you at the table at 730. You're like, who is this? And she listen, sis, you don't know me, but I know something that's about to happen to you. And it happened to me. It Mm -hmm. happened to me. So I'm going to tell you some things and show you some things that you don't know yet. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But if I'm right, I'm right. 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 And so she hands over her little notebook and so she can read the playbook. That's how the mRNA vaccine theoretically works is it's a genetic code. It's able to go into our cells. The memory B cell says, I, okay, let me read. I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. And that's how she's getting her receipts to create the memory. And that is different than what we have done before. Um, to my knowledge, there's no mRNA vaccine or DNA-based vaccine that's ever received FDA approval. And off the top of my head, to be honest, I can't tell you which company has already tried this before in a different you know, pathogen. I don't know that. I just know that this is new because this is one of the first times that we're seeing this type of vaccine development is the mRNA. Every company is not doing this, by the way. I just know off the top of my head, the Moderna one is an mRNA vaccine. And there is another company that's working on a DNA-based vaccine. That one. So, So this is new. The mRNA vaccine, however, from what I understand, it does require that super cold storage. Um, you know, with that, that. they're trying to figure out logistically, how do you do that? And one thing about vaccine development that's important to remember is it's not enough for a company to have something effective. If something's effective and you can't get it to people safely, it's useless. Yes. It's useless. So manufacturing, consistent manufacturing, safe manufacturing, and being able to have reproducible results is more important than a high percentage of of accuracy it's more Mm -hmm. important because if something says oh it's 99 percent effective in these conditions we can never replicate in real life what does that do for you nothing doesn't do anything so that's why the conversations are going to continue and um that's why this whole thing about supply is very important um because that kind of vaccine will not be able to be used for parts of the population because logistically it's not possible Mm-hmm. Um, so when people say, oh, they're going to have the vaccine in the fall and line us all up, that physically is not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's physically not possible. Even if legally they could do that, it's physically not possible because manufacturing, especially for vaccines, makes or breaks a whole entire process and program. Can you expound on that one? 
because I get that if you aren't sure. able to uh, replicate the um, condition, then it's not going to um, mm -hmm. effectuate the the change. Yeah. The, it's not going to work. But does the because in my mind, I'm like, OK, so if you mix this and you mix this and you put them together at that scene like that's in my mind, non science mind. Mm -hmm. Well, I won't say non science, but the not vaccine familiar mind is that mm -hmm. you just make it and either it stays cold or it stays has to stay at a certain temperature or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what about manufacturing is, um, I guess, not difficult, okay. but needs a little more. Yeah, no, no, no. I got you. So when you're talking about manufacturing products that people ingest, you know, through their mouth or, you know, in their body, whatever, it's a different level of sterility mm -hmm. and cleanliness requirements. Not to mention every single component you put in it has to be verified, it has to be sourced properly, and it has to be kept at proper temperature during the mixing process. I'll give you an example of where this went wrong. So remember swine flu H1N1? Mm -hmm. We have the H1N1. There was yeah. an H1N1 vaccine, right? So some of the batches, which is why this is why batch numbers are important, you know, in vaccines down to makeup down to your chips you ever eat a bag of chips that don't taste right then say yeah that was a bad batch that's yeah. the reason we put batch numbers on things so they can trace where problems come from mm -hmm. so there were batches of the h1n1 vaccine from certain manufacturers that caused um they call them vaccine injury you know any like side effects especially lasting side effects they're, they're vaccine injuries um it caused an increase in certain injuries outside of what statistically was to be expected for certain conditions for okay. example, narcolepsy. There are small groups of people in Europe, especially the, some of the batches that went to Europe, that they noticed after people had the vaccine, you know, months to a year later, there was a there was an uptick in certain people who got narcolepsy. And they were able to trace it to some of the batches related to the H1N1. If I were, my memory serves me correctly, and if it doesn't, people can look this up. But I think it had to do with some of the um, expiration dates on some of the stabilizers of that that oh, were damn. not necessarily optimal at the time so this is why batches are important and that's also why um batches are continually reviewed and monitored even after people get in people think oh i get an fda approval that's done fda approval doesn't stop at just saying your stuff's effective it's a continual process and that is the reason why um, some of these vaccines and some of the drugs period when they're mixed up in the lab or in the manufacturing facility Every single piece has to be monitored as far as refrigeration, cleanliness, um, all of those things. So when I say bad manufacturing can make or break a program, bad manufacturing can make or break a program. Gotcha. And every company in America does not have the facility and the experience to actually manufacture some of these medications in the high quantity that will be necessary. For the most part, a lot of pharma companies have gotten out of the vaccine market because there was no money in it. Mm. So, so just to, you know, clarify some of that. So it's not as simple as does it work? It's okay. Now that it works, now we have to talk about something else. Like once you get to a point where you have the data to say it works, we still have to talk about manufacturing. We have to talk about stability, how it's going to be sent out. So that's why you might hear people say, if the Moderna phase three trial shows it works, we're only going to use it in a certain population of people like the elderly, right? At nursing homes okay. and things like that who are more impacted. And that's one of the reasons why. 
So you have to also hedge your bets on what population would need it most, right? To justify the work as you're still working on getting other vaccines out into the market because we will have multiple options for COVID vaccines in general. And what option will be best for people is going to be not the same. It's going to be different populations of people that might benefit more or less from Mm -hmm. something else. So how does that relate to flu vaccine? Because to my understanding, it's just like action. Do they like, because I've never gotten a flu vaccine. I've had to get a flu vaccine. So one of those people that doesn't necessarily uh, like taking stuff like Tylenol or whatever, because Mm -hmm. I'd rather for is causing the pain or whatever I'm wanting to take something for, I would rather address what is causing me to feel this way as opposed to just making me feel. However, I also just have like a higher threshold for pain, at least in my mind. So if if I could sleep Mm -hmm. it off or if I could just eat something and go to sleep or do something else to distract myself, then I take something. But that being said, when I get to a certain point that I want to take something, I'll put, so I've never had the flu vaccine for a ton of reasons, but that being one mm-hmm. of them, I just don't like putting something in. I can't take back out. You know? So to my understanding, it you just go someplace and they give you the vaccine. So if there are different types of vaccines that are better suited for different parts of the population, is it that, mm-hmm. well, do they do that with the flu vaccine one? And how would we as potential recipients, even a vaccine, know how to either advocate for ourselves that we get the right version of that vaccine or even knowing, or I guess, where would we go to find out what version of it would be good for our, for, you know, for mm-hmm. us? Okay. Great question. When it comes to the flu vaccine and I get the flu vaccine um, and I get it mostly because I work with cancer patients. So when I'm, doing my job. I'm usually in an oncology center. And so people have no immune system. I'm someone who's never had the flu. Um, So I'm not necessarily worried about the flu per se, although it's important for us to remember there's tons of different strains of flus Mm -hmm. and different strains of flus impact different populations of people differently. Um, If someone tells me there's a version of flu, I think it's H5N1. I don't remember. I think it's H5, but whatever it is, it's one that they serve, that they watch very carefully because there's no confirmed human to human transmission. If there was human to human transmission, we're fucked because it has like a 75% mortality rate. Oh, damn. So yeah, no, like, yeah. So there's teams of people all around the world who monitor, you know, flu viruses and every year the flu season is not always bad, you know, depending on mm-hmm. which strains kind of show up more in the population or not. And it really is a guessing game as to predict which ones show up. You can actually look, this is public record, but you can look up previous years to see at what percent accuracy we were able to predict. So some years they're spot on with what, they're, what they think they're going to see. Mm-hmm. And some years, not so much. Um, last year, I think a lot of people will remember the flu season wasn't that bad last year. Okay. Um, with the exception of children, more children died of the flu. That part the I do strains remember. that showed up, remember? But the, some of the strains that showed up were harder on children than they were on adults mm-hmm. um, last year. Um, as far as the type of flu vaccine, off the top of my head, I can't tell you. I think some of the flu vaccines are inactivated viruses. There might be one that's a live attenuated virus, but it does change every year. So when they say, you know, it's flu season, get ready for your vaccine. They are trying to 
pick the strains based upon data that they're collecting all year round across the world, which strains are going to be more prevalent because it's seasonal and it does change. The real bad bitches of the flu, um, those are monitored very closely. Again, the one that I'm thinking about, I think it's H5N1. It's one of those avian flus. I pay attention to that because if we ever have confirmed human to human transmission, y'all think a lockdown is something. <laughs> y'all ain't seen a lockdown yet. Um, so, so to your to your question about the whole, so how do we know with different kinds? With COVID nineteen, we're going to have to wait and see. As of right now, the studies that we're seeing published and released, this is phase two data. Okay, so Moderna has gone into a phase three trial. So now, for what people are who are phases? not familiar with, with yeah. this, and this is, okay. So in general, there's phase one, phase two, and phase three. This is not just for vaccines. This is just for, for drug development and any kind of clinical something altogether, right? So the goal of phase one is just safety. So okay. phase one is typically small. Phase one usually has healthy volunteers. So these are those things you see advertised for college kids. Come make a couple hundred dollars. Yep. For, for three or four weeks. So the goal of a phase one trial is to say, okay, I have this molecule and I need to test this molecule to make sure it's safe. And I need to know at what threshold is it safe, right? To, to be in a human population. That's the goal of phase one. The focus of phase one is just to say, we need to establish safety parameters. So we're not giving people quantities of something, right? That can kill them. That that's the goal of, that people actually tear for that. Th yeah, that's the that's the goal of phase one. Now, keep in mind, phase one comes after animal trials. You got to get through animal trials. But phase one, when I say these phases, this is first in human phases. So mm -hmm. let me like this is first in human phase. This is not all of the phases of testing. There are years of testing usually before you get to even phase one. Right. Mm -hmm. So phase one is healthy volunteers, and we just need to establish. How is a dose related to side effects, right? If I give you dose 1A, what kind of side effect do I get? If I give you dose 1B, oh man, the side effects double with half a dose. Like that's what we need to know so we know scale. That is phase one. Phase two. So this is the data that has been published from Moderna. People say, oh, Moderna published a study, Pfizer. This is phase two data. Phase two data is a larger population of people. Um, phase one could be 20 to 150 people as far as healthy volunteers. Phase two, we get into several hundred people in phase two. This is when we start trying to iron out what are the common short-term side effects and what size dose do we need for a certain immune response? This is phase two, okay? You have to, it's kind of like a Mario. You got to pass each board before you can get to the boss, Okay. The boss being FDA or in a regulatory body, you know, we got the EU groups and other parts of the country. They're the big boss. So we have to pass these phases successfully. Like you can't fail phase one and go to phase two, start back over. Right. Okay. So phase two, then we go into phase three and there's sub parts of phase two sometimes, but for simplicity, we go into phase three. Okay. Now phase three is kind of like, this is when you need to show me something. So phase three is a lot more people, usually thousands of people of something like a vaccine. Okay. Thousands of people. This is where you have to say, I can say with this percentage of fidelity statistically that my stuff works as compared to insert insert could be placebo. 
right? Because there's no other COVID vaccine. So we can't compare it to an old vaccine, right? So this is when we say we blinded our population, right? So I didn't know what Dana got. Dana ain't know what Dion got and no one else knew, right? And we let, we do a study and then we remove the cloak to see who got what and what does the data look like? Double blind studies are kind of considered the golden standard because it makes it very hard to try to influence the data because nobody knows who what got. So on the cancer trials I work for, some of those are double blind. And so I don't know what, what, what Dana got. Dana don't know what she got. We mm-hmm. have a way to unblind you for emergency purposes, of course, but right. it's just to try to keep honest people honest, right? Yeah. So phase three though, is where it's, it's, the big, it's the big pile of data. It's mm-hmm. more people, it's usually a more diverse population of people, right? And this is where we can say, okay, we're gonna now compare this to nothing or compare this to competitor be true versus what we want it to be true. Okay. That's phase three. Once we pass through phase three and it says, okay, we looking good still, right? That's when we have to go fight big boss, which it would be presenting in front of a regulatory body, which is, which is a whole nother process. And if anybody ever is interested in that, I don't know if people know, but you can actually watch um, pharmaceutical oh. companies present in front of the FDA sometimes on their website. Yeah. And on those, sometimes you'll get people who participated in the trials who actually go to provide their feedback. Some people say, this drug changed my life. Some people say, yeah, I took it. I don't think it did anything. Like all of that is something they have the option to do. But that is basically the phases of research. Okay. So Moderna has gotten through phase two. But just because you have a successful phase two doesn't mean you have a successful phase three. We have to right. wait and see. If people had, if people could really make money off of guessing what would be what, a lot of people would be rich. But majority of drugs that go into development don't work. Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. work. I've worked with people who've been in clinical research for 20 years and they've never worked on a drug that's ever gotten approved. That sucks. You got to be invested in the work field of industry yeah. where you don't see necessarily um, success or like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So and it's very easy to be like, oh, the data, the data I was asked, which phase? <laughs> oh, okay. So what is the, I, I don't want to say like this length of time, but what is really the accepted amount of time for something mm-hmm. to be studied for the FDA to say, okay, we'll consider um, whether or not this is something we want to approve for public or not? That's another great question. So with vaccine development, because of genetic sequencing, we're in a phase now where some of that initial legwork doesn't take as long. Mm-hmm. If we take it back to the 1950s and 60s, you could probably say from the identification of a virus to having something that we could use seven to 10 years. If okay. we take it back to the 1950s, we've gotten more efficient and faster as other technology has gotten better. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're gonna, it's also still dependent on the results of the trials. There's companies that had fantastic phase one. <laughs> Excuse me. God bless you. Fantastic phase one data. Thank you. Fantastic phase two data, right? Get to phase three, nothing. Back to the drawing board. So I try not to ever put the cart before the horse. Um, plus, once you get, you, you do get through phase three and it looks good. So once we get approval, 
then we have to get into manufacturing and packaging and who's going to get what and who's going to have access to get what, right? And that has to do with cost and all of that. So it's still not something that is approved on Monday. You can call your CVS next Monday right. and line up. It doesn't happen like that. Okay. It doesn't happen like that. But with genetic sequencing, what we're able to do now with DNA and mRNA and all of that, which has really been the big push in the past 15 years, generally speaking, I think people are going to see an increase in being able to identify targets faster because we have that as a tool. If we did not have that as a tool, all the previous research related to SARS wouldn't be as valuable because we wouldn't have those other things as tools. And even though a lot of people are publishing a lot, and you know, people keep seeing the news on this, 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 do not count the chickens before they hatch. We still don't know until we know. Okay. So what is the thing that'll let us know that we know? How do we know when we know? So when you're talking about how do we know we know, generally speaking, the goal of a drug is you want to cause more benefit than potential harm, right? Fine. There's statistical thresholds that have to be met. For oncology drugs, that threshold has to be pretty tight for obvious reasons. You're dealing with people who are very sick, right? Um, when they present to the FDA, they're going to have to be able to show data that shows a certain level of effectiveness within a certain window. Now, I'm not a part of the FDA and I'm not a biostatistician, so I can't tell you what that window is. What I can say is the protocols for these trials, especially the Moderna trial, they're a public record and it's online. In any protocol, there is a biostats and statistical analysis portion of the protocol. We have to clearly be able to state how we want to analyze the data. And that mm. has to be something that is laid out and explained in a protocol. And that is a part of protocols. So if people want to take their time and read it, I think it's about 184 pages. If you have statistics experience or someone to talk to, they can help explain those thresholds better than I can. Okay. But that information is out in the public. Okay. So I'm going to question now, is it MR Nancy Apple or MR and understand? Oh, you might MRNA? Uh-huh. Like the letter N, M -R. So it's a, Yeah. So it's the little M and then a capital R, capital mm -hmm. N, capital A. Okay. So that, that's like, I, some of y'all going to try, and I assume you being uh, learned uh, fields and jits are going to laugh, <laughs> but that, I promise you, that sounds like that zombie apocalypse. I don't, I don't do the zombies, and I feel like, like, that's how all oh. the movies start. <laughs> you know I mean, this is some new, new shit. Well, and this is, I, uh, go ahead. So, so here's the thing with mRNA. mRNA is genetic material. We have DNA, right, in mm -hmm. humans. We have DNA. mRNA is just a single strand of just RNA that's complementary to DNA. So mRNA is nothing new. It's in bacteria, it's in viruses. mRNA vaccine, we haven't necessarily done that before. Um, we, we, have, we haven't necessarily done that before. Uh, remember how I told you how you think about mRNA, like the playbook someone's handing you when you get to read it? Mm -hmm. beforehand that's right. because like the m piece of it means messenger so so that is how it's able to transmit information for protein synthesis back and forth um i want to say something about the zombie well i'm going to say it so the thing about the whole zombie thing because i love zombie mythology there's already a virus out there that if you look at it's not even a virus it's technically a bacterial infection but 
Uh, <laughs> that actually, when you look at the side effects of people, it actually is what the closest thing to zombieism would be, if that's the word. And that's rabies. No. Um, that's already out there, though. <laughs> oh, motherfucking yeah. science. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's that's already out there. <laughs> um, but but that's what it is. The mRNA is, is, is a messenger, and that's what allows it to transmit genetic code. I don't know anything about the basis of mRNA for vaccines in that regard. It makes sense. Um, and so let me let me let me add a little another explanation with the whole mRNA. So coronaviruses, you might have heard people, you know, the little uh, well, you've seen it on the news. They have a little image and it has like spikes. You could spike the spike protein, the spike protein. Okay. Right. So that's actually kind of how they get their name. It's crown-like, the spikes. Okay. That's what that means. In the, as far as the family, so spikes. That spike protein, that's the part that causes the big immune response, okay? It's that spike protein. So the idea with using the mRNA is we can get the genetic code off that spike, oh. write it in the book. Mm-hmm. Your cells then get to read it and say, oh, okay, we, are, we know what this looks like. So when we see the spike, we, are, we already know how to react. Think about it like this. You know how like you can give a bloodhound or a dog a scent for mm-hmm. them to, to yeah. you know smell this and go look for it. That's almost what you're doing with your with your memory B cells with that spike oh. protein. You're giving like, hey, this is the scent of what that looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And your your memory cell is reading it and understanding the scent. So the moment she get a whiff of that, she said, "Oh, I know that smell. That's fuck nigga. I know that." Yep. He wearing he wearing cool water and juice. <laughs> I know that. That's an old player. That's a that's an old player. I know that. That's an old player. But that's but that's kind of that's kind of the idea. If that gives you a better understanding yeah. of like how this actually works, the spike protein is what a lot of companies are targeting. But there's many different ways to target inactivating the spike protein. And spike protein is not the only only method in terms of vaccine development. There are other companies that are taking a very different approach um, with this vac- with this virus, and they're not so much targeting inactivating the spike protein as they are other things. Okay. We just don't have the data from those yet. And it's going to be another year or two before we really get all the data from other programs that are up and running, because mm-hmm. depending on the program and depending on what the vaccine is, the FDA can say, okay, this sounds cool, but before you do this, because we've never done this before, instead of it being 500 people, we want you to recruit a thousand. So during the protocol development process, the FDA provides feedback. Some of that feedback, you know, it's kind of like, I'm not telling you you have to, but it's smart if you do. And sometimes mm-hmm. they can say, well, we've never done this. We want you to increase this pool. So we normally might have said 200 people. We need you to recruit 500. Okay. We're going to need to see at least 450 or, or, or whatever. We mm-hmm. want you to change the protocol. Instead of, instead of you, know, you recording this data to this point, we want data an additional six months, right? Okay. They can do all of those things in the protocol development phase before a, a study gets off the ground because you go to the FDA for feedback. And they can make their suggestions. And, you know, kind of like, I'm violent. We call it voluntold. You know, yeah. I'm not saying you have to, but it's strongly encouraged. Right. So you're going to see as these protocols come out, when people look at the protocols, they're going to say, well, why did this protocol say we needed a thousand people, you know, to look at this phase versus this one? And some of those things could 
technically, you know, have to do with, with vaccine development could. I say could because I'm not a protocol writer. I can't right. speak for them. I'm just saying some of that could be influenced by the different methods and approaches people are taking to this particular vaccine. That was good, right? Y'all, this is officially the first two-part episode on travel and shit. So the kid is a little excited. Next week, be sure to come back for part two with Dion and we continue the vaccination conversation. We get into a whole lot of things, but of note, we get into pandemic versus syndemic, possible side effects, recourse of vaccination versus not vaccinating, the effectiveness of the vaccine, efficacy of tests, and incubation periods. Y'all just, all the things. We really get into a lot. So don't forget, tune in next week for part two with Dion and get the information that you need to help safely make a decision for yourself and your travel needs. Different places to call.